Welcome to Fashion Forum, a podcast brought to you by the British Fashion Council. I'm Caroline Rush, Chief Executive. Today we bring you a series of conversations highlighting the relationship between the creative industries, celebrating not only fashion designers, but also the broader creative community, all of whom play a vital role in our industry's culture and reputation, promoting British creativity on a global scale. I'm Kenya Hunt, Fashion Director at Grazia Magazine here in the UK, and I'm really excited to welcome as my guest on this episode, Bethann Hardison. Now, many of you will already know Bethann. She's a pioneering fashion advocate and former model and agent who is best known for her work creating change within the fashion industry as it relates to diversity. A huge part of the reason that models of color are now as visible as they are on the runway in magazines and in campaigns is largely down to work that Bethann Hardison started decades ago. And I'm really pleased to have Bethann here. So welcome, Bethann. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Yes, it's always good to talk to you. And so, I mean, you, um, you're you in New York and I'm here in London and, you know, we're we're here and we're talking in the midst of some really turbulent times. Uh, Bethann, you and I were just on the phone a few days ago talking about everything that's happening in the world right now, um, including the Black Lives Matter protest and the wave of um, riots and activity and discussion and conversation that's been happening as a result of that. And I wanted to start out by asking you, have you ever seen anything like this before in all of your years working and advocating for change? Well, prior to even advocating for change, you know, I was a little bit of a militant kid. And believe me, besides the Vietnam War, which took on its own life and the demonstrations against that, nothing, including that, has been like this. Compared to something like this, you know, surely we've marched before, we've gone up against the system before, we've done things like that. But this is like, you know, multicultural, multiracial. And in, and as much as it says Black Lives Matter because of the death of Mr. Floyd, George Floyd, it just basically has sort of like just hit a nerve so it makes it even important to people globally. Yeah. When I hear they're saying, I can't breathe in Australia, I think to myself, and they're thinking of the, and, and fighting for the Aborigine. I, you know, this is a ma- magnificent moment in history because it allows people to talk about race where they didn't feel, maybe many didn't feel comfortable before. So Bethann, I think a part of the controversy is that, you know, there you have those people who think that fashion brands, because these are essentially companies that operate for profit, um, they shouldn't be engaging in the activist space at all. <laughs> so from your perspective, how can fashion brands respond to this movement and not look like they're profiting off of black pain? We have to recognize the fact that our world has gone down this rabbit hole. We're in it. So for it, to, to, to be offended that a brand is, is uh, profiting or a profiting brand as now sort of like giving themselves some light off of black pain. I don't, I don't look at this. I can't see it that way. I, I mean, maybe because I'm, I, I've been down many roads and seen many things. I don't see it this way at all. If a brand wants to stand up and say they support, the brand wants to give money to different organizations to help, 
let them do it. I could care less where it comes from as long as it keeps coming. And I'm not going to judge people based on their real intent. And I don't find that this is so much only our pain. This seems to be a pain of a great global situation. We all can go to work and act like everything is fine. And, you know, the lump is underneath the rug and we just step over it. But until things are addressed, and we all have to do it, we can't say you can't, you shouldn't, because you're not the right person to do it. Who do you think you are? You shouldn't be making money. And you're the person, you're now getting off of my pain. Look, come aboard come aboard. That's so interesting, Bethann, because, you know, we are, I mean, I can't remember ever seeing so many people engage with something. I mean, everyone is using that platform. All of us who are on social media um, or, or whatever platforms we have, you know, whether it's um, the, the the companies where we work for in terms of those of us who are journalists or those of us who are just on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, you know, we're using that. And so it's a, it's a really, you know, phenomenal thing to watch unfold. And I wanted to ask you about the role that you think social media plays in all of this. Why do you think we're seeing such an, a, a huge outpouring of emotion and response to this now, as opposed to, you know, a year, two years, even three years ago? You know, it's a combination of things to me. It's, first of all, it's timing. We're coming out and we're still sort of on the edge of COVID-19. It's quiet time when people had to stay home, be conscious of things. You know, a lot of things were taken away from us that we usually would be participating in a daily moment. But besides that, where, where our minds were slowed down and our t- activities either became more in one way but less in another, The thing that everyone saw that no one saw before was the actual video of how this all happened. Mm -hmm. So when you actually see a police officer with his, his knee on the neck of a, say a alleged suspect of sort, and he's there so long that it's almost like he's doing an editorial for a magazine. He's, he's there so long while man is yells for his mother says, officer, I can't breathe, please, I can't breathe. For us all to see that, it's not like something was told to you or you sort of saw part of it or it was a little bit, everyone saw it. So it's kind of hard for it not to touch someone's heart, yeah. to touch someone's, you know, compassion. I mean, we have a few people who don't seem to get it, but and they're leaders of the free worlds and things like that. But the fact of it is the average Joe is very feeling like they know that that's something that's wrong. And you can see it because there they are. They're out there. When you say Black Lives Matter, this is not like just Black people walking so no one pays any attention to it. This is not that anymore. This is fully integrated. Yeah. So it has this effect. How do you see this impacting the future of fashion? I find that especially for the, if you live long enough, and you know the journey that it takes to have done things. You know the journey before we were ever born. You know what people went through. And when, they, when someone starts to try to help, you start questioning their intention. It's ridiculous. So I'm sure now there are fashion companies and people really trying to do what they can little by little. little by, it, takes, it takes a moment to get things done. But little by little, now the, this is a perfect time to make your point. But be reasonable, be wise, be smart. Don't be angry. We got that part going already. 
I think a part of the controversy around a lot of these brands speaking out is that you have, you know, some big brands who've made statements and uh, in, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, and then you have people calling them out on it because they have a history of overlooking okay. Black people, or they have, or if you were to look at their their staffs and in, in their buildings, you'd see that you know they they don't, really don't have much diversity on their teams at all. So, I, what would you say to that argument? Um, to me, it's not an argument; it's just an emotional statement. Don't question what was, because I can go back and tell you when they didn't even allow us to read. I can tell you when I grew up in North Carolina, every summer of my life, even though I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, but every summer of my life, I worked with my grandmother from 18 months old to 18 years old to North Carolina, which was still one of the better states in the South at the time for segregation. But we had to walk in the back of a five and dime store because we were colored. We had to sit upstairs in the movie theater because we were colored. We couldn't drink out of the same water fountain if it was in a public place. We had to have the colored one, and then there was a white one. The colored one was always the most dirty. Mm. But when people say, oh, my God, that must have been so awful. It wasn't so awful. It was what it was. It just was what it was. But you know what? Before that, you didn't even have that. So for those brands who have stepped forward with the desire to, to create change, where do you suggest they start? I know brands that have been doing things that have been considered philanthropic way before this, but no one knows about it because they just do it. And then when things happen, uh, uh, a design is done or someone misunderstands it and they interpret a design as being something that's racially charged or inappropriate or, you know, in a, a misappropriation of how people wear their hair or, you know, in a fashion show, whatever the things may be, all because you're being creative. Um, it doesn't mean that because brands don't have, it's time for them to find out how to do. Uh, do they need to, sh you know, show that they're doing it? You know, I'm not here to sort of like, <laughs> I really don't want to be that person. I hope that people, as they continue their work and try to do the best they can with the knowledge they have, in this Im imposed, you know, moment, and it's been imposed upon us all, you know, this imposed moment can really bring some sort of like, you know, success in how we all sort start to do things around and work together. I think that, you know, they're going to all, I think, consciously do it. And I think there'll be people who are going to, you know, check on them and ask how you're doing. I, I, I don't ever, I know there's going to be this need to make sure that people have a certain percentage of this, a percentage of that. That's not my style. That's not my way. It's not, wouldn't be my point of advocacy to make sure that people do it because no doubt people have to be accountable, no doubt in many ways. Um, but I just want to give them some sort of respect to hope that they have enough intelligence to move it along consistently. What would you say to those brands and designers who might have historically shied away from the topic of race. How do you think they can address this moment responsibly? You know, I'm going to tell you something that was very interesting, and I want to share this with you because this is something that I think lends really quite to the question. In February, I was asked to come and speak at Ralph Lauren's company for their Black History Month. Now, I'm very... I, you know, I grew up with Ralph Lauren. I'm a big fan of a, of a as a human, I am of him. And uh, we come up and worked in the same building, 557th Avenue. 
um, for a period of time. You know, of course, I represented Tyson. I was the one who presented and got, you know, made the deal with Ralph for Tyson Beckford. All those little things are true, but I also knew Ralph before this and that, uh, and I've always had respect for him. What I didn't understand is when I was being asked to come to his office to speak it for Black History Month. Now, this is like a what? Yeah, you can't even imagine because so many people thought that Ralph Lauren was someone who was, when they got, when he, when he took on Tyson Beckford, that that was the first time ever he had ever had a Black model, which is so far from the truth. This is what, this is how, this is how things are told and things are remembered in our, uh, in, in inappropriate history or truth. But this is not, that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that I think, oh, wow, Black History Month, Ralph Lauren, who died? Okay. I go to his main office, which is on Madison Avenue, and surprise to me, which I didn't know, of course, his brother, his top executive, they were all there, his son, they all wanted to be there because I was coming to speak just a one-on-one -on -one with uh, uh, Carter Randolph, who was one of his executives that worked with him in the creative area. Well, she and I to talk, but the young people of color that works in the Ralph Lauren company was mind-boggling to me. Mm. Because the average people who run these companies, they're good people. They may be white as white and definitely removed from it. And you're right about people not feeling comfortable sometimes to have the conversation to step up and to say, yeah, black, white, well, I don't know how. They don't want to step wrong. They don't know. Sometimes they feel like if I, I you know, I don't want to look like, oh, now I'm just jumping on something. All the things that you say naturally is exactly how some people feel. So they basically fall back. It takes courage. It does. It takes courage for a, a luxury brand to stand behind Black Lives Matter. Because they, you know what? As I say to many of them, stand up now. Because you know what? There's always going to be the haters. You know, it's... um. I'd love for you, Bethann, to talk about your experiences when you first started advocating for change in this industry, because we're seeing so many people engage now and, um, and organize. Um, you know, I've participated in quite a few Zoom calls and, and group discussions about ways that we can sort of build on progress and make change here in the UK. You started doing this decades ago um, back in New York, I remember joining yeah. some of those panel discussions and town halls that you were having quite early on. So I'd love it if you could just talk our listeners through um, through your journey, why you started advocating when you did, and the steps and the and the plan of action that you put in place that that yielded all of the progress that we've seen over over these years. Yeah, it's interesting. Um... I grew up in uh, the garment business and I became a, a model and uh, eventually as I worked in the showrooms and learned every aspect of peace goods business, manufacturing, and I'm very happy to come from the garment business. And then I started working for designers and many different things and you know you eventually work for designers in different levels, all levels. Um, I started to work for a model agency, you know, uh, and then I wind up doing my own model agency. And as time goes on, you know, you always were able to feel comfortable talking to your industry because you've been there. You know them. You know who they are. Sometimes they would want to have models, you know, and they feel very good when they start to really cross over to using print girls because it was always the runway model that took care of the design. And the runway model was a different department to the print girls. It was two different areas of service. 
But in the end of the day, you know, when you get into this opportunity and, and now you have like the Calvin Kleins, the Perry Ellis's and the Donna Karens and people like that calling you for models and they liked me and they knew who I was. And because I was of color, I had a white model agency. That needs to be clear because it's very important. The whole point of to compete with my white counterpart is I had to have the same product. If I had the eye and I had the quality and the ability, that's how I was going to change things. Because once I knew what was going on in the white world, I could help integrate the black, the Latin, the Asian. So with me, they would call me to see if they can get a black girl. And sometimes I'd ask them, how many models are you looking for to have? They're going to have 35. And then I'd say, well, how many black girls? And they said, just find us a great black one. And you sound it's like the one. So you just question them. I had no problem helping them understand how that sounded or how Brides Magazine never thought that they that black people got married. I mean, they just never had a black bride or even a, a bridesmaid. No one of color in Brides Magazine. Years, it was years before, surely it's the 80s and 90s, but still. So it was easier for me to find comfort in speaking to them about because of the way I spoke to them about it. But as time went on and, you know, I left the industry, meaning left the model agency in 1996, that's when things start to change. We had the Black Girls Coalition, but that was bringing calls to see how things could be balanced in our industry for advertising and all. And then I noticed that, you know, I was being called by Naomi Campbell. Every so often, you know, I'd taken, you know, my, I guess if you say, uh, taking a little time off in Mexico. And she kept telling me, telling me the black model was disappearing. And she was just, they were disappearing. That was in 1997, 98, 99, like that. So by the time I got back, my feet back on the ground in, in the New York, yeah, okay, I was being asked every year, every season. I just couldn't get my mojo going, but when I did, it was time to speak on it. The girl of color had disappeared. The glamorous model had disappeared. So it was time to sort of like <clears throat> call together enough different people in the, in the industry and hold a press conference <clears throat> and speak about it. It was really just to sort of like help change. I knew if I could help the fashion model and put that back on the runway with the designer and get her back into the, um, into the eyes in front of people's eyes again, it would help to change society a little bit. And that was the thing that was most important to do at that time. I thought if I could, Get her back. First of all, she's there. She's not getting work. Well, it wasn't because we never had it. We used to run the runway. We, the, the black model was queen at one point. There's no doubt about it. So the history now has changed because a designer decided to just focus on the Eastern European girl who was coming through. And that changed our history. That changed the history. When I say our, I mean my industry's history. Mm -hmm. And that eliminated the girl of color. Um... But it also eliminated someone like Linda Vangelisa. Anybody who was glamorous eliminated because they just wanted you to just look at the clothes. Don't look at the model. Just look at the clothes. The girl became just synonymous with each other. They looked just like each other. And that was very, I could see that was a problem because, you know, you know what you know. You basically know the history. You know better. And you don't decide that these people are racist. If I thought that, I didn't think I could even change their minds. I just knew that they would falling down some hole and they needed to get out of it. And it was not a problem for me to, to help them to understand it. The good news is I had people like yourself and other young people who really were happy that somebody was speaking about it. And I had the support of newspapers, media, 
international press. I had the support. I had the support of Iman and Naomi Campbell. So I had the support. And I had, I had behind that, you know, a, I called it a diversity coalition of many young people who worked in the industry who were white, black, Asian, and worked in every different form. But I didn't let anyone know who they were. And they would be my eyes and tell me what was going on so that we could change things. And as soon as you start to talk about it in 2007, it got good for a minute. And then, thank God, Franco Susani came out with Italian Vogue. and She did an all-black issue, and it made her point even stronger that don't say that black doesn't sell, because that issue sold to print two to three times over. It never happened in Connie Nass in their history. So it was really something that was important for us to start to show that there is you can't say that they don't exist. You can't say that it doesn't sell. You can't say all these things. We just got to implement. And so that became the beginning. And as soon as we, just like this movement, as soon as we started going up and we started making differences, you see things slide, sliding back down. Because you, Bethann, have this phrase that I always quote, and it's this, um, this mantra that activism must remain active. <laughs> That's why I keep saying to people when people say, well, you know, she's an activist. I always correct them. I said, I'm an advocate. Because even though I know at a moment I had to be an act, I had to be an activist. I had to get out there and put my foot to the pedal and lean really strong on the gas as I gauged it nicely with the clutch. That was, that was something you had to really do. And, you know, as soon as you step away and you lean back, I watched it. I leaned back. And I watched, oh, the black girl started to slip away again. The girl of color starts, and then all of a sudden the white girl started coming up again. And then I started getting calls. You, you, need, you need to see, because I don't always go, at that time I wasn't going to Europe anymore. And then I have to get, you know, different editors who, who, were, who were part about the, the, about the movement. You got to see what's happening. You got to see, yeah. And then, you, then I had, the, when I got the Frederick Douglass Award, that was a, that's the line that came out of my mind. Activism must remain active. Yeah. Because I see when I didn't, it's shift. And it's going to be a shift with this. I mean, you've got to know that, but you can't be mad at it because we're going to make, this is progress. Progress is something that most people don't understand because they want permanent moment. They want a stamp. Progress is movement. It needs to constantly be, you know, it's almost like a, it's like a, I don't know, like a good kneading of bread. You know, you have to just, you have to, help to help to marinate it you have to work with it and you have to be mindful of it so you mentioned uh moving the needle to you what does moving the needle look like today i remember when i was young you know starting out you know relatively speaking in this industry joining the town halls and participating in that when you were doing them back in new york and back then i remember the conversation was the fact that there were few to no models of color on the runway. You know, we'd see, we'd go to shows during the fashion week and see show after show, no black models. Maybe we'd see one. If we were, mm -hmm. if we were to see two, that was a huge amount. And then through the course of the years in your work, we began to see two and three and then four and five and then six and seven. Now it's, you know, you see a diverse runway. It's not a headline the way it used to be before. Yeah. And you help to normalize that that visual of seeing women from a range of racial backgrounds on the runway and right. so we can we could chart the progress there we can see the difference that you've made there when, when it comes to talking about uh race and fashion right now what does moving the needle look like to you what do you think the next steps need to be 
You have people who come along that are just who they are. But then there's that other wave of people who come along and they come along like a tsunami. They come along as almost not knowing each other, but they're a group. Mm -hmm. They don't have to know each other, but it's a wave. I think that now I think there's going to be a shift. I think there's already been a shift. I I don't think you need to have, you know, Mr. Floyd lose his life to really, or many before him to lose their life to him. It's a build up to a point where the needle needs a swing and it's a pendulum. And at this very moment, the good news behind some things is that while there seemed like there was nothing happening, there's been a growth. There are a lot of young people out there who really have something to say. And they're in business for themselves and they're making they're making statements. They're trying to galvanize. I know different ones that I don't want to name because I can start if I not start naming three, I, I would have left out two others. But I know there are people who are doing things, and this is this is why it's so important about gentle progression and activism and advocacy. Because you you're doing it, you're doing it. And then all of a sudden it looks like nothing is happening and there's no results of it. But there is, because it's a moment like this that happens, and then there's a, a moment that the door opens and there be a moment of shift. This is the moment. So I think that this is now this moment where the needle is going to swing because there are people asking for things. And because now with what's happened right now, there are companies that feel put upon to do the right thing. To do the right thing, God bless Spike Lee, do the right thing really is step up and try to see how you can pitch in and help out. You know, do something. There's a motion happening, whether, no matter where it's coming from, it's action. And some of those people that's being helped are really great voices. They're going to come out and they're saying things and they're speaking up and they're intelligent about it. You know, you're dealing with, you know, the man, quote unquote, as we used to say back in the 70s. So you need to come, you got to come strong and right. So this whole thing is really wonderful that people are coming up with things that they're asking for that, that's smart. And companies are going to find percentages of their income to give, to help, to start, because they want to be on the right side of history. This is the moment. This is not the end. This is the moment for the shift. And the needle is swinging. The big pendulum is really going. You got it. It's kind of, it's nice now because people are not afraid to talk about race. It's a conversation you can have with your children for sure. Always you should have had anyway. But now even grownups, your age can start talking about it and not, they don't feel shy because a lot of liberals are very frightened to talk about it because they don't want to say the wrong thing. You know, I used to say back when I was doing what I was doing, you know, liberals are borderline racist. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I used to say that all the time. Yeah, out of town hall meetings, you know, you you know, if you ain't stepping up, you're stepping off. So don't be so afraid you don't do nothing. Don't be afraid you can't hear. You know, so it's it's important right now. I think it's a very important time, and I think there's a lot of good voices that are going to be heard, and they're going to make a difference because they have the right stuff. And they're going to stand up and help others come through the door. I've been really. Um, encouraged and inspired by the way that this narrative and conversation around what is essentially about the brutalization of black 
people has also turned into a, a celebration of black voices and creativity. I've, I've loved seeing support on social media for black owned businesses and how, you know, a lot of my peers, black editors, black designers, um, people with voices are using their platforms to shine a light on other peers, black creatives, black authors, black designers whose businesses are worth supporting. So yeah. I want to ask you, who are some of those designers and image image makers uh, mm -hmm. and writers who you think are contributing to the conversation around race in a really productive way? Okay, let me answer that question because I was thinking about, uh, I have a girlfriend who, who used, to, used to live in my town in Mexico and she moved back to Chicago. She's a blonde and blue-eyed girl. And uh, she gets so moved by things and she's a creative and she just basically now just put together. She, she's good on graphics. She's just very good. She's a designer. She's on many things, but now she's asking for her friends, her friends who are creative to start to, and she got 20 names of businesses that are black or black or brown owned that she wants her friends to start supporting. And I thought to myself, look at Lisa. Her name is Lisa Kingsley. Now she's a white girl. I'm naming her because that's that's hands across the sea. But the black kids that I see now today that are doing things, I like that, you know, Tamu McPherson was basically doing a whole concern about black um, creatives in Italy. Yeah. That, you know, that's a very lean area. Italy in their little tiny country, they don't have a lot of in your face who's black that lives there that can really be integrated into their businesses. And her doing that was something that's very, to, to me, was very important. And yeah. she would get together, have these conversations. I love that, you know, my little Aurora James yeah. is going, up, going to companies asking them to please consider 15%. Going, but she only selected the right, I mean, there could be other companies, but I liked that she selected specific companies, you know, that she thought could make that happen, that could use it, that would be amenable to it, to, to, to do that. So there are people who basically, you know, for sure, we all know Kirby Jane Raymond, Raymond, who does just creative good things that constantly, because he's passionate about his race of people. But yeah. to go to the commercial side, when you really start to make a difference, when you start to talk to, to the industry that you live in and try to help them to bring together smartly how you show them what they can do, you need to help them. And people can say, oh, they don't, you know, all the negative, all the no-sayers, I get you, but you're not helpful right now. <laughs> you're not helpful right now. Right now, we got to help educate people. And a lot of the people you have to educate, young as you all may be, are the people who never did any of this before. Mm. Those are the luxury brands, and those are the big stores, and those are the people who really need to see how, but they need it be presented to them in a way that they can swallow it. And then on a brand level, you know, what are some brands, uh, which brands do you think are making positive steps to create a culture of racial inclusivity within the, the fashion industry as a whole? I think, yeah. well, first of all, you know, I'm a Gucci uh, change maker. Yeah. Ch that's why I said I had to go. That's what took my mind off it because I was going to say we go beyond just fashion. We got to go beyond just fashion. And what I love about the, the, the change makers is that it's beyond that. It helps a, a lot of organizations that are helping their own community. They're not just, it's not just fashion based. There's been so many organizations, you know, no matter what happened with the Scopic thing, no matter what happened, the money that was allotted to be taken care of and to give scholarships 
first of all, to students who wanted to go into fashion is one thing, but we also not only want you to be, you know, we're not only just looking at the fashion designer, we're looking at also the young person who wants to be in the business of fashion, which is very important to me. I always want people to know how to make a good business. But also the, the, the many different organizations that's helping around the United States of America that helps their own communities. That's really important. And there's need for that because there's a lot of people trying to help in the communities, you know, with everything for young people to, to be able to survive and do well, to have after school programs, to do anything that could help young people in their community not go astray, not become lost under the underbelly of crime. So there's a lot of good things that's being done with that. I'm very proud of that. I've always believed, like I said, you know, that whole thing with Ralph Lauren thing was really impressive to me because I didn't even imagine or that a company like that would even have some, that they would even want to have Black History Month. But that's because a black woman who's runs, she heads, she's young. She heads their retail, all the retail stores. She's been there 13 years. Or 20, she's the one that's been there 23 years, I think maybe. And she's, you know, she's ever been in her early 40s. She's mm. been there all her, and she runs all of that. And she wanted to have Black History Month. Because she thought the young people in her and her that worked at the company, how who, who would have thought they had that many black people working there, and young blacks, you know. So that was a that was impressive to me. It's not you know what you're teaching them, it's what you're allowing them to have and to learn and to work with a company that's strong. I don't know enough about other brands, you know. I I you know I, I used to be always impressed with um, Atalu Atalu Atalu. Atalu. I'm saying his name wrong, but he was the menswear designer at Calvin Klein, and I just love that he took it upon himself to use the, the you know, because at that time we were moving the black model, but you weren't seeing much about the male model, you know, because we had to get the girl out there because the girl is the one that you, everybody knows this first. But I love that he that he put on his cover, David, uh, the male model, uh, as a, a, a big advertising for Calvin Klein. And it was so proper because that's something Calvin would have done back in the day because Calvin was someone who was very smart at marketing and all. And I thought that was impressive. And I was always pleased by the Calvin Klein company two of things that they had done because it was all, always kind of radical, off the cuff, oddball, things like that. Right now, I don't know all of the companies that are doing what they're doing. I don't know enough. But those two examples, one being in Europe, and, and besides the fact that the scholarships to be offered, you know, from on the Gucci side, the scholarships are being offered, offered to the, um, that they already have selected five uh, students to come to work in the, the studio of Rome that are from Africa. And that's a very interesting program that I'm going to at least have an opportunity to see happen and see grow. Uh, that's very important. And that's for everyone from Nigeria, two companies, two students in Nigeria, two in uh, Ghana and another and, and, and one in Kenya. So that's a very a good opportunity for them because there's a lot of great, you know, design ability coming surely that are existing in Africa, but young students who, you know, the last thing an African parent wants to see is their child will be a designer. I know that for a fact. They want you to go for be a doctor. They want good education. <laughs> they want you to, you know, to come back and be something, a lawyer. They want you to substance design. Is every every parent, no matter where you come from, worry is like, you know, how are you going to work? It's it's such a risk. So this is a very good thing how too. Eat? That, that, how are you going to eat? Yeah, just a good time to implement change, even if it's just the beginning of your mind and knowing how you can then begin to affect it going forth in your business. Because it's a quieter time, even though we're beginning to all go back slowly into business, it's, it's, it's a, a good moment 
to now figure out when you go back what you can afford to do and what you can't and how. Uh, the conversations must happen, if nothing more, because just because you have a, a, a an office don't mean, you know, you still got to support the people you already had that was there before. But you got to find a way to sort of like to start to communicate this and feel that it's, you're open to at least start to to find out who's out there, who's possible, so that when the time comes that you can hire someone, you lean in the direction of someone that's of color. That's a very important moment to do. That's a very important thing to do. I, another thing I, I was very happy about, I want to say what the, 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 I do need to say this, the statement that the CFDA made, I was very impressed with. They name a few companies, but they also name things like, you know, having a, uh, a roster, having an, someone that they would employ to be the only person who would just basically look for what talent of color is out there. They say black, I say black, brown, I say people of color, but theirs was black people. They want to find out who is out there that is basically available in their capacity of work. Setting up a, a I call it Rolodex, a roster of, of people who they could get to know who's out there. Because many times people say, I don't know who to hire. Who should I hire? I'm having a talk today. There's another woman I should mention is Norma Kamali, who's very quite well known from us from the 70s and the 80s and all. But she, is, she reached out to me, you know, uh, before all this complete in, intensity of pro uh, protesting because she wants to, you know, bring someone of color, a good designer that deserves to have a recognition into her space because her building she has. She doesn't need the stores closed because of COVID, but she wants to be able to see what she can do to help someone who has, has it and just could use the exposure. And she's not the only one because when speaking to Tom Ford, you know, who now is the chairman of the CFDA, you know, he's open to all those kind of things. And it's a very interesting time. There are people who are around who, who never shifted because they were always that guy. And now they get a chance to be head of something else as he still runs his own entity, you know, and still do. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's some good stuff I saw. I was very proud. But then in conclusion, I'd like to just ask you, what next? Where do we go from here? For tequila? No, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where do we go from here? Yeah. No, where we're going from here is that we're not going anywhere. We're riding this, we're riding this wave. This wave is, you know, we got to see how this takes us. Where this yeah. takes us. I felt like this about COVID, you know, like, okay, so you want to reenter. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not rushing because I've been very happy to be put in, put the, to lay down and stay still for a while so I can re-equate myself, re, you know, remind myself of who I am and where I come from and what I want to go forward doing. And now we have this movement that I think is so important to be a part of spiritually, if nothing more, if you can't physically get there, but spiritually be there. And I, that's why I don't, I don't question anyone who wants to say I'm down with it. I don't question their intent. I don't care what their intent is. Just show up, give it, and be it. And where I think we're going to go from here is forward. And long may it last. And, and long may it last. Very well said. Fashion Forum is a co-production between the British Fashion Council and In Talks With Productions. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. 
If you'd like to find out more and join the conversation on social media, then head to londonfashionweek.co.uk or at London Fashion Week. 